0: Hi, this is Lisa Wilcox, also known as Alice Johnson from A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5, and you are listening to The Pod and The Pendulum. Cheers. Oh.
1: one more terrifying on the screen today. He is the first in fear. And you thought it was only a movie. It's a brand new nightmare. Welcome to Wonderland, Alice. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, rated R. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. Hey
2: everyone, welcome back to The Pod and The Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie. I was going to say one episode at a time, but we are here for our second episode on The Dream Master, the 1988 fourth entry into the Nightmare on Elm Street series. This was a film that like when we put the call out looking for guests, we had... So many people that wanted to jump in on it and I wanted all of them on the show, but think that like me trying to run a six person conversation over a podcast would make me stick my head in a vat of acid. So I figured let's double the clicks. Let's double those downloads into two episodes. So I'm joined once again by my co-host Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we?
1: I am doing great. It's really cool that we're doing two uh, shows on this movie, especially because we had so many people want to do it, which makes me so happy because I love this movie so much. I mean, like we said last episode, this is my favorite Elm Street movie. So yeah, this is gonna be fun.
2: Yeah, and I think we're gonna dive into a lot more this week, too, of what makes it that. But I don't even think I introduced myself. But you know what, we're 81 episodes in if you don't know who I am at this point.
1: Go you back better ask
2: and, somebody. not yeah, go back and download another episode. We'll, we'll take the extra download, just so you can get my name. But anyway, we are joined by two returning guests tonight. Up first, we have Filmmaker, the director of Follow the Crows, and Onus. We have Alex Secker. Alex, how are we? I'm all right, thanks. How are you guys? Doing lovely, man. Doing lovely. Brilliant. You are a trooper, because it is 1.30 in the morning, where you are <laughs> right now, and... You know, I know we don't we don't see our video right now, but like I see you and you look like you have some regrets <laughs> right now. You look like you're like, what was I thinking when I said I'm going to do this? I
3: mean, what was I thinking is just my perpetual state. So excellent, <laughs> excellent.
2: and we are also joined by another returning guest. Um, you can find him on the Halloweenies podcast over at Daily Grindhouse the consequence of sound uh, network and also one of the upcoming directors of the music box of horrors drive-in horror movie festival welcome back mike vanderbilt
4: thank you very much mike well hello there ladies and gentlemen hello there ladies and gents uh very excited to talk about uh what is arguably my favorite of the elm street sequels so very excited to be uh joined by some people who adore it as much as i do are you arguing against yourself that it's your favorite?
2: Like, when you say it's arguably my favorite, like, do you have these arguments with yourself back and forth?
4: Look, man, three is the obvious choice, mm-hmm. and there's I, I, there's, nothing I, there's nothing I can say about three uh, to vilify it. There's nothing bad about it, but there's something about four that seems to perpetually edge it out for me, and I'm sure we'll get into that on this episode.
2: I think we will. I'm looking forward to the, like that person who's going to come on and say the remake is what does it for them, like that
1: one. See, I want to have that conversation so bad because I mean I can't stand it, but I want to find that person.
4: There's one guy out there uh, because uh, the, on the 10th anniversary of the release of the Nightmare on the Street remake, I said I want to find this take, and there was one out there, and I retweeted him. Um, he's on twitter we will i will i will send you guys the link cuz i'm sure he'd be happy to come we on We need to find this person he's out there i'm telling you
2: everybody every movie
4: is somebody's favorite
2: movie that's and we try to take that approach we definitely we try to take that approach no matter what so. for
1: our uh, elm street alumni series that we're doing these little small one-offs that we're going to put into one show i'm trying to get Kyle Gowner to come on for the remake segment i just so. want to talk season
2: two veronica mars with him it's
1: right kind of, I, oh amazing. dude i didn't know you're into that that's one of my favorite shows of all time
2: first season of veronica mars is up there i think in terms of like sopranos yeah game of thrones the wire in terms of
1: quality no, I'm just first kidding.
2: season yeah so it is what was that one I said The O.C. <laughs> I watched one episode of The O.C. and tapped out. I'm like, this isn't for me.
4: So the O.C. was okay. I watched, a, I think, a year or two of that. When it was I think on. it
2: was like a, a poor man's Beverly Hills 90210. Indeed,
4: so, indeed. So It's no Dream
2: Master. It. No, it's no but dream Master. very few things are. Very few things are. So I'm going to put it to the, the panelists first. And Alex, I'll start with you, my friend. What is it about... Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, that calls to you? What was your... Sorry, let me rephrase that. What was your, like your introduction to like Elm Street 4, The Dream Master?
3: So I actually think this was the first Elm Street I saw. Mm. Um, I no idea why. I think it was probably just on TV or something. But it's just so cool. I mean, that's, that's the extent of it, really. It's so damn cool. Like, Freddy is really, really... He is what people think Freddy is in this movie, I think. Um, you know, at one point he puts on sunglasses, he's he's badass, he's jumping over fucking church pews and stuff, he's he's twidd- twiddling his knives around and stuff. It's, it, like, it's I. It's just, you know, and when I went back and watched the earlier movies in the franchise after seeing this one, I think I was a little bit surprised that he wasn't always that. Um, Mm -hmm. and then when i watched later movies in the franchise i was a little bit disappointed that he is too much of that (laughs) right (laughs) yeah this is the goldilocks version of freddy krueger
2: and that it just right like he is funny and you definitely laugh at like a lot of the one-liners and jokes he has um but it's still dialed back in just enough to like keep Freddie a little scary and I think like when you get to part five the dream the dream child like even Robert Englund to an extent it's like this shit again so he's just is gonna do whatever he wants at that point and I think this is like you said that really good mix Overall, So how about yourself, Mike? What was your introduction to the Dream Master?
4: So despite what we were talking about off the air, about my memory starting to go as I get older, I, I definitely remember, uh, let's take it back to uh, 1988. Uh, I have a certain affinity for the Dream Master because I believe this would have been the first horror movie that I was excited for. Uh, because mm-hmm. I think I think we all remember this. I don't know if we can remember the exact point when we were kids, but there was a point before, so I would have been eight years old in 1988 when uh, Dream Master came out. And before that, I remember being scared, terrified of horror movies, so much that I didn't want to watch them. I didn't enjoy them. I didn't understand why anybody would enjoy them. But in 1988, that's when my mom bought me my first issue of Fangoria. It's got Elm Street 4 on the cover. And I I didn't see it at the show, but I must have ended up renting it on video. And then I remember taping it off cable and watching it incessantly. And to go back to what Alex was saying, like... So, Freddy's definitely scary for part one. He's still terrifying in part two, which is one of the things I really like about uh, Freddy's Revenge. Part three, I think the last time he's really scary is maybe when he slides out in that opening sequence uh, going to grab Patricia Arquette. But by part four is Freddy Krueger as a pop culture icon, as a rock star. And this is... uh, Arguably, the moment when, as you said, he becomes the Freddy Krueger that we all know and love. So much to the point they even kind of start whitewashing the child murder aspect of him uh-huh. a little bit to make him more palatable. So he can be put on lunchboxes.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. And we're definitely, we have a whole segment here where I think we're going to deep dive. Because I. You know, what's amazing to me, and I think Nat Bremar said this, we were playing um, Dead by Daylight one night, that PS4 game, and, like, the Freddy in that game is Jackie Earl Haley. And I think Nat even said, like, it's amazing that for, like, a whole generation of people, like, Jackie Earl Haley is their Freddy. Um, And I don't think people really understand, like, just how, like, the closest thing I could think of right now was, like, Pennywise the Clown from, like, the It films, and like uh, Alex Skarsgard, Sar- his performance in that movie, in terms of like kids that had not seen the IT movie, know who Pennywise is and they know what his deal is. But he is not nearly that ubiquitous presence that Robert Englund and Freddie was in the eighties. Like no. it's hard
4: to well, I, Im- I, I think imagine. I think what you're going for is something that I think about quite often is that there is there was never a horror icon in film, like Freddy, before Freddy. Jason comes close, but you got to remember what? Michael Myers hadn't been in a movie for... Seven years. Six, six, seven years before this one. Mm -hmm. And there's never going to be anybody like it afterwards because anybody who attempts, any filmmaker that attempts to do a new Freddy Krueger, it's always going to be derivative of and rightfully Mm -hmm. compared to the original.
2: I almost think you have to do what Final Destination does and if you or you know we're going to talk a little bit about Freddy's nightmares later on where like Freddy Krueger wasn't really the a factor in those shows like Freddy was more like the crypt keeper that introduced the segments to it but it was more about like general nightmares overall and I think that if you ever redo the Elm Street series you got to move away, as, as odd as it sounds, you got to move away from Freddy because no one is ever going to be able to play him like Robert England has played him. I just, I don't see it.
1: No, totally. I mean, uh, that's what I was saying, I think, on the Elm Street 2 episode that if they did mm-hmm. another Freddy movie, I'd like to see Robert England in it, but kind of passing the torch because we're all yeah. afraid of different things. And I think that that fear can be manifested in so many imaginative ways. You know, rather than have yet another new person play Freddy and having everyone being disappointed in it, like, why Mm -hmm. not have Freddy kind of, like, mold into, like, some different kind of fears, you know? It's different for everyone.
2: So let's look at where horror was in 1988, because it's a really interesting time in horror, and let's look at, like, what made Freddy stand apart overall. You're looking at by, like... Dream Warriors pulls in an insane amount of money. Like, on a few million dollars, they do somewhere around, like, 30 million bucks. Um, And when you look at, like, where Friday the 13th movies are at this point, they're pulling in less than half of that. Like, A New Blood, which comes out... May of uh, 1988. yeah, same year, less than twenty million dollars, and that's an actual improvement over Jason Lives in terms of like what it did for the box office. Toby Hooper, a year prior to this, comes out with Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two. It doesn't even pull in ten million. Like the return of Leatherface is met with a resounding wet fart in theaters. <laughs> um, John Carpenter. Has a modest hit with Prince of Darkness in that it does like Halloween 3 money on a Halloween 3 budget overall. So like your icons at this point, they've peaked. Like Jason is, and you're going to get into the Kane Harder years overall. And I think we finally remember him as Jason, but he's in the lower performing... Freddie movie, uh, uh, Jason movies overall. So by 87, 88, you're seeing horror movies that either skew a little bit younger, like The Monster Squad, or you're starting to see what is going to be like known as like psychological thrillers in the 90s, like Dead Riggers, The Stepfather, The Witches of Eastwick, which I guess is more of a comedy, but they're trying to appeal to an older audience and a much, or, a much
4: broader audience, too.
2: Yes. Yeah. You know, and I think what's going to be interesting, and I would love when you guys, Mike, I know you're one of the hosts of Halloweenies, when you get to Jason Goes to Hell, <laughs> talking about how in the, in the early 90s, when you look at like the nine, 1993 when that came out, you have Wes Craven doing A New Nightmare, you have the, in another year, you're going to have The Curse of Michael Myers, you're no longer dealing with teenagers like you're dealing with like young adults that have children and it's almost like these franchises from the early 80s and are saying like look we want you to grow up with us. Yes. And audiences said fuck no, we're not going. Well that, do that
1: that ends by 1988. I think it's 1988 and in my opinion is one of the best years of horror ever. That and it like I one of the big reasons I love Dreammaster is it was kind of like the last legitimate go for the series in in like a way that like was super successful to fans, you know after after eighty eight, you know years later, our, you know we'd get Nightmare on Elm Street five that you know kind of didn't fit well within the series. We'd get Halloween five, which a lot of people didn't really care for. You know we'd get like the later Jason movies that did smaller numbers and smaller numbers. You know you know what I mean. Like I, in eighty eight, we had such a variety of horror that all these franchise slasher films that we loved were kind of being over, like, overdone by, like, you know, we had The Blob, we had Child's Play, Dead Ringers, you know, Halloween 4, we had The New Blood, we had Phantasm Two, all these movies that showed every kind of subgenre of horror, and they kind of started, like, overshadowing all the franchises that we loved. And I think Dream Master, along with, like, Halloween 4, were, like, two of the last slasher films in the series that we loved. But so really just went for it before they started fizzling out.
2: Totally agree with that statement. And looking like even before like Return of the Living Dead, Evil Dead 2, you're seeing much more humor mixed in with the horror at this point. And I guess I'll throw this to my panel. Like, where do we stand on horror comedies as a subgenre? Because I think by this time, like Elm Street 4 definitely at times plays like a horror comedy. Where do you guys feel on this kind of mixing of the two genres? When it works,
3: it's brilliant. When it doesn't, it's the worst thing ever. I wholeheartedly agree with uh, this.
1: I was watching Ginger Snaps this morning because uh, I'm supposed to write an article for a magazine about it. And that is a movie that doesn't force humor on you but the humor is so dry that it just lands it works you know it doesn't have to broadcast the fact that it's funny and i think a lot of horror films that try to do that it just it it they come off super flat they come off super annoying because like like it just doesn't gel right
4: and let's bring this up i think a lot of people kind of mistake or forget the fact that freddy krueger was always funny He's funny in that first movie. He's always got the wisecracks. It's a darker sense of humor. And I think the original Night on the Street is by far a much more transgressive film than three or four or five. Maybe not quite as transgressive as part two. But it was a different sense of humor that was coming in. And to uh, jump on Alex's point, yes, when it works, it's great. Because comedy and horror are intertwined. Uh, it's the, the catch and the release. Uh, they both require a certain intangible skill that you can't quite put your finger on it Like, but you know when it's funny you know when it's scary but when it is awful which I think is a problem with a lot of more modern comedies is that it's this so bad it's good mentality that I don't like where well I can't truly make a terrifying movie so I'm just going to make fun of the movie as I'm making it. If that makes sense. Like you're hedging sense. your bets. Like as long as I'm not taking myself seriously, then the audience won't take this too seriously. And then there's a difference. there's a difference between a funny horror movie and a horror movie that's fun, which sometimes intersect, but not always.
3: I think the best funny horror movies as well are the ones that tend to, by and large, they take the horror seriously and and the comedy seriously if that makes sense something like
4: american werewolf in Mm -hmm. london absolutely i think it's a great horror comedy uh i qualify fright night as a horror comedy i would agree uh because sometimes i wonder, is that just a horror movie that's fun or is it a horror because there's never i don't think there's any there's no real jokes in fright night but if you love horror movies that movie can't help but make you laugh
1: yeah, you can't help but smile every single time Evil Ed's on screen or, or you know, uh, or Roddy McDowell's character. I mean, he he's just camping it up so much that I think the humor just lands 100%. Yeah,
2: the beauty of Fright Night is if you – because this was a period where, like, you had mentioned the Blob Jerry, like – people that loved classic horror. Like if you grew up watching the creature double features like the Universal Monsters or the Hammer the Hammer uh, horror series, the filmmakers of this time are like bringing that influence into their filmmaking. Like Tom Gofflin with Jason Lives makes a gothic horror movie in a Friday the 13th series. You have like the blob being remade. You have the fly being remade, you know, but very much their own things. Like Fright Night... Very much, like, if it didn't have its tongue in its cheek, like, it was definitely nodding back to those classic creature feature movies that invoke these, like, warm feelings and nostalgia. Alex, for you, I'm interested to hear, like, you had said, like, when it works, it's brilliant. What do you think... Because what works is going to be different for so many people. Like, what do you think is the thing that brings, like, the peanut butter and chocolate together that makes it work
3: for a horror Um, movie? I, I see I think it's about sort of striking that balance and that there's almost an element of of gallows humor to it you know like un- understanding that the 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 horror elements are are horrific, but also that there is an element of like you know ultimately I think as as horror fans as an audience, we go and watch horror uh, as a kind of a release. Um, it's the same reason that people skydive um you know or do ridiculous things like climb to the top of a mountain that they're probably going to die on um and and i think it's like a safe way to do that and and being aware of sort of the absurdity of that uh but also respecting the that it is scary but there's also a an absurd humorous element to that um i think that's how it works you know cabin in the woods is is one that sort of jumps to jumps to mind straight away i think it understands the the importance of taking the scary stuff seriously and there are elements of that film that are quite nasty um but at the same time there's such a sort of a gleeful fun in understanding why the audience enjoy it and and what makes that fun that it's allowed to find the humor in it too? Mm-hmm. No, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. I really? also because
1: think, that like, like, good, good like humor. humor a rumble, I think. No, 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 that, no. I, you had great, From great points. From one rambler to also, another,
2: it's totally fine.
1: <laughs> I also think that good humor, I also think that good humor in horror sets up the scares even more successfully than just a straight ahead, like, series horror film. You know, because good humor. And I don't mean just like, you know, like dick and fart jokes, but like just like really subtle humor that kind of eases the tension, gets you kind of comfortable. It sets you up for another scare. And I don't quite mean like jump scares, but in general, I know when I'm like relaxed, that's when I'm going to get scared shitless by something, you know? And I
4: think part of that goes into and I think this is something that up until about Friday the 13th Part 6 and excluding Part 5 and most of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies is... The inclusion of likable characters. And I think that is where the Friday the 13th series went wrong, post-6. Like, everybody in Part 7 and 8 are awful people. And I do not like anybody in uh, Halloween's 4 or 5. But the Elm Street movies continued delivering likable characters. And Part 4, I think, does that very well. Especially considering there really wasn't a script when they started filming.
2: Right, I think they even talk about, they had a reunion recently where they talk about how they were kind of writing their own character backstory and history and some of the dialogue between them overall. And you're right, like, at at some point along the way, and I think we especially saw this with the turn of the century with horror movies, where it no longer became about rooting for characters, or it no longer became about, like, the audience like seeing themselves in these characters, like, holy shit, this could be me. Um, it became about like these stock, are these like basically these archetypes that were usually assholes that you couldn't wait to see get mowed down.
4: And I think that's cheap. And I, I think a lot of, I mean, I think horror movies today still make that mistake. And it's because the screeners either don't know how to or are afraid to write real friendships into their script. Nobody has to be a saint, uh, and characters can grow, even in an 80-minute horror movie. But this idea of just, and you can usually pick it out when you watch a movie, you're like, oh, this is the character who I'm supposed to cheer when the killer finally gets him. And I don't like playing it I don't like, I don't like being, in, I love when a movie can manipulate me, but that's, that's, uh, that's see-through to me. I don't dig that.
3: I think it's about misunderstanding what it is that makes the horror work as well, though. Like, what the audience actually are attracted to and what they like about about that particular film you know i think i think a lot of a lot of uh, horror horror writers horror directors and stuff or, or maybe producers and studios rather would tend to look at it and think oh it's it's the kill count it's the gore that's that's what works and that's what we need so we'll just chuck a bunch of stock characters in like you say and then let them get killed off whereas in reality although all of that stuff is important you know, you look at the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, for example, the, the arguably the two most successful ones, Dream Warriors and, and Dream Master, other than the original, obviously, which it also applies to the original, too. They all have characters that people like and people know as well. People remember the characters mm-hmm. from these films. Yeah, everyone talks about Rachel
2: from Halloween 4 as this great final girl. But I would say as far as part four goes, to me, Alice is the best and I think our previous guests, like I know Terry from Gaily Dreadful and Scarred uh the Scarred for Life podcast were saying it's his favorite final girl period. Like
4: I th- I think she even trumps Nancy. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean Yeah. As far as development goes, even if it's all very on-the-nose, which is even more impressive considering there is no script, like, that's what, the moment where she's pulling off all the pictures in the mirror after she's adopted all their powers, I was way too old when I figured that out, like, what that meant, and it's very on-the-nose, oh, she's going to see herself after she takes down all the pictures of her friends that got killed and she adopted her powers. But it's so good, particularly for a movie that, like we said, didn't really have a script at the beginning.
1: Well, what I think is great about that is that a film that didn't have that much of a script at the beginning because of the strike and so many things is almost it was almost set up to fail in so many ways. But I think what made it so successful is not just the casting of great actors that that would inhabit the roles, but the the writers who ended up actually you know working what they could with the script i mean you know brian helgelin you know wrote a good amount of this movie i mean that guy and correct me wrong this is his first uh credit yeah writer, and yes? he went on to win an oscar for writing la confidential he wrote mystic river directed payback and also i mean a couple friends of mine went out to lunch with uh courtney joiner a while back and he was just like that we were they were talking about movies and he was like yeah, I'm not supposed to tell anyone, but yeah, you know, I was an uncredited, uncredited rewrite on uh, uh, Dreammaster. So even Courtney Joyner worked on like rewrites. <laughs> see, like, I don't know I think, though. What? The
2: only thing about that is like, if he's uncredited, anyone can say like, "Oh yeah, you know, you won't see my name." Anymore. Well,
1: no. Well, he wrote he wrote Prison, which uh Ray Harlan makes sense, did. I know. You know what I mean? I Like, tease. like it's 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 no, I I, I got gotcha. you. It's just it's I think any other combination of people maybe would have made the film less successful but the fact that the people who ended up writing what they could with what they were given I think really know the genre and really know what fans wanted and it really shows and even what uh Kelly was saying on the previous episode you know a lot of the cast came up with a lot of their character stuff and like what they would say on the spot you know like this this film is a really good combination of so many creative people really making a film their own and really giving fans what they wanted and what they expected.
2: And there are moments like the one that really gets me is Rick's funeral, um, where he comes out of his coffin and, you know, does his, his whole Jerry Lee Lewis routine. And, we know that it's Alice daydreaming and she refuses to give into the daydream. She's like, Nope, can't do it anymore. And it's really heartbreaking. And I think it's, it's one of those, like, just like, you're not going to see that in most made for teen audience, like horror movies uh, of this era. Like there just wasn't enough care and in love put into it. And I think in large part, a big reason why the Elm street series succeeds where others fail so often um is you have like at the very very top you have bob shea from new line cinema who always felt a sense of gratitude towards this character of freddy because he knew that like without the first couple Elm Street movies, like there is no New Line cinema. And you have Rachel Tal- Talalay, who would go on to direct Freddy's Dead, acting as like a behind, you know, basically behind the scenes on parts one, two, three, and four, before taking a break on um for Dream Child, kind of like knowing the ins and outs of everything and how it works and what doesn't work. So you have this consistency that is never there in any of these other Franchises, so you would have something like Hellraiser, which is such an incredible first entry uh, to a series, and then Hellraiser Two is a pretty damn good follow up, and then it's like pfft, wet well, fart.
4: By the time, well, I, I have I really like Part Three, but Part Three is definitely the Freddy Kruegerization of Pinhead because that came post Freddy's Dead, I believe, where every horror hero was trying, they were every studio was trying to make the new Freddy.
2: And my last note on horror of this era is this is the time period where Paramount approaches New Line Cinema and says, hey, tens of millions of kids at recess are asking who would win in a fight, Freddy versus Jason. Why don't we give them that movie? And Bob Shea looks at the bottom line of Jason Lives and looks at the bottom line of um, A New Blood and says, those two numbers don't even equal what I'm getting on <laughs> Dream Master. Um, basically, and you want a 50-50 split. Why don't you guys go pound sand, basically, <laughs> and come back another, you know? Because he, he's not stupid. Uh, and then a couple years later, like Paramount was always embarrassed by the Friday the 13th movies. Like they were always, Even when they were making money hands over fist, it was like... You know, you know how you have that like cross-eyed cousin that, like, for whatever reason, has a photographic memory, and like you kind of show him off at like family dinners, but at the same time, you're like, eh, all right, go sit at the kids' table.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> the thirteenth <13th> <laughs>
2: They were always oh like that. God. So, in a couple of years later, New Line's going to buy the rights to Jason um, for a song. And take over with uh,
4: Jason Goes to Hell, which is one of the best movies. The most imaginative entry in the Friday the 13th. It's so
2: good. Love that movie. (laughs) Love that movie so much. But if you want to know the long and winding road that it took to get uh, Freddy versus Jason going, go back into our archives. And we devoted a whole episode into the backstory of freddie versus jason so please oh
1: man so much dominic Netro- necro so much dominic
2: necro i was
1: just, i'm just taken back because i was that cousin that you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, sorry. so thanks mike <laughs> sorry, sorry oh
4: man i'm gonna get canceled i really one day i'm gonna get canceled um uh-huh. Everybody gets their 15 minutes of being canceled. I think Andy Warhol said that. Excellent. Yes, that is so, true.
2: So let's talk about how this is peak Freddy at this point. Let's talk about how this is really the entry that transforms Freddy from the scary movie monster to like beloved pop culture icon. Um, it doesn't go too far in the comedy that five and six are going to go. And then it doesn't like new nightmare to me overcompensates in the other direction um but we'll get to that in a future installment so what is it about the freddie that stands out in this uh in this particular entry to you gentlemen
3: um i think rennie harlan put it best i think he, he realized that uh when he was coming to 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 make this that freddie had become the james bond of the series he was the draw mm-hmm. And the reason why people were coming, so he had to shoot him to a certain degree in a heroic light, um, and and I think that's as simple as it gets, really. Like he he approaches Freddie as as the fun, you know. His, when Freddie shows up, the film livens up, mm-hmm. um, and and everything becomes a bit more sort of over the top and stuff. You know, at the end they're fighting, they're like uh it it's it's like uh the matrix or something. <laughs> you know, there's it's a prize fight. It's like a heavyweight prize fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's that sort of over the top craziness, understanding that Freddy is this sort of almost caricature of a character character that he was in the original. Um, and
1: what an entrance, you know. Like like this rock star Freddy is reborn by getting a golden shower from a dog.
4: <laughs> that is the only thing that when I look back on this when I when I watch this movie now and I think to myself, okay, as an adult, I'm watching I'm watching Night Realm Street 4 at a press screening or at a film festival or something. I feel like I would almost want to get up and walk out. As an adult, when you see the dog Jake the dog, my favorite. Dog actor of the 80s. A lot of people get him confused with Mike the Dog, who is down and out in Beverly Hills, but they're two separate dogs. Jake the Dog also is in The Hidden, also a new line joint, and The Boy Who Could Fly. They're kind of like the uh, Dylan McDermott, Demma Maroney of dog actors <laughs> of the 80s. But I digress. I would probably want to get up and walk out once I saw the dog pee on Freddy's grave. <laughs>
2: it, and it's fire
4: piss. It's not oh, just pee, it's but fire. It piss. is a, it, it does offer up the great story that we've all seen where um Rennie Harlan explains that James Cameron asked, <laughs> oh, how you how you're bringing him this back this time?" And he's like, "Oh, we have a dog piss on him. <laughs> is it I in... just don't get it. I don't understand I.
3: <laughs> i don't understand I, how it came to that or is it in ah, whatever is it in the never sleep again doc where Renny Holland he like explains his reasoning behind it and which is what was the reasoning again i like dogs <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh <my laughs> God.
2: listen in 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 the year 2067 when avatar 5 is finally <laughs> ready to come out and, like, uh, robot body, human head James Cameron is like, how am I going to bring these blue fuckers back this time? It's going to be dog piss, all right? That's totally what it's
4: going to be. But, like, what makes Freddy so iconic at this point? I think it's this perfect intersection of one thing I think, and I think the uh, I don't think the Halloween series did this as much as Elm Street was pretty good for this and uh, was really good for this. And even Friday the 13th was letting the directors... Have kind of an auteurist vision yes. to each movie, and you see that with Wes Craven's original. Obviously, you see that uh, you know Jack Shoulder, who you know he did Alone in the Dark. Uh, he did some pretty good horror flicks. He brought that tone to it. Uh, Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell, you kind of see that comic book energy they brought to like something like The Mask, which Chuck Russell directed. I don't know if Darabont. I don't the think Mask, Darabont was involved in it. The Mask
3: that. was supposed to be the new Freddy at one point, wasn't it?
4: I yeah, see. yeah, it's supposed I, I, I to be
3: straight-up
4: horror. I can see it. And, like, bringing on an action movie director, because, well, Rennie Harlan had done Prison, um, but he would eventually go on to become an action movie director. Bring on an action movie director, bring an action movie kind of vibe to the film, and a perfect intersection of Robert Englund, I believe, really kind of fell into the role in Part 3. Like, he really kind of figured out who Freddie was, and Englund's a ham. We all know that. And then intersecting that with, like, this is the height of MTV and giving it that MTV music video style and a great rock and roll pop soundtrack. It can't be beat. And it's so of the time. It's, I guess what I'm saying is it's of the time. Like this movie could have been made in 87 and it couldn't have been made in 89. It had to have been made in 1988.
2: What do you think it is about 1988 in particular that makes it so?
4: It's, it's the height of the MTV era. It's, Mm -hmm. um, right before hair metal started kind of tuning out and giving way to grunge. Um, but it's like post new wave. It's a pop rock. I mean, pop rock's always huge, I guess, but there's something about that year.
2: You know, well, what I, I think I even like noted down it's before it's when MTV is still showing music videos. Like that is their primary thing. You're still a couple years away from the real world which is gonna like really start to transform that channel. You're a couple of years away from Beavis and Butthead and I remember like to your point like um Winger is the band that stands out. I remember like one of the dudes from Winger was saying like one day We're on the top of the fucking world. We're selling out concerts everywhere. Our merch is everywhere. Our records are everywhere. And then the little uh, dweeby kid on Beavis and Butthead is wearing our shirt. (laughs) And we couldn't sell out like a men's room stall at that point. Like all that shit gets cut out at the knees in the early 90s. So you're right. This is MTV. Like when they really could dictate the taste of pop culture and youth culture.
4: Absolutely. And they owned the world probably for the nineties too, but like it was a different, it was a different time. It was a different style. And to bring it home, Freddy Krueger, this is when they, well, I think they, they started with part three. They had him hosting music video segments.
2: There is an hour long MTV special you can find on YouTube and it's Robert Englund in full makeup. You have like one of the VJs at the time basically trying to track him down for an interview and it plays out like a mini Elm Street oh, movie. Oh God,
4: I can't remember. Uh, Kevin Holy Seal, cheesy.
2: Kevin Seal, you're right. And you have like videos from like obviously Alice Cooper, the Fat Boys, like people you would dock in. But then there's like yes, owner of a lonely heart and Peter Gabriel, Shock the Monkey are the videos that kind of bookend this this one-hour special, and you're like, what the fuck? Like, what kid that's watching Elm Street is like, Peter Gabriel shocked the monkey, like, give me more of that. You know what, though? This is
4: pre-Sledgehammer. I was going to say, that says it all right there. Freddy Krueger was for everybody.
1: That, and, like, when you think about 1988, like, it wasn't just a huge time for horror. I mean this is the same year that, you know, Don't Be Cruel by Bobby Brown and, you know, uh, Simply Irresistible by Robert Palmer came out. You know, that's like such a good indication of where that year was. Like it was such a big year for all kind of pop culture, you know. It was it was it was huge. And I think this movie just hit audiences, especially horror audiences. It hit the soft spot for so many people. I I I, and I this probably isn't talked about enough,
4: but like Freddy Krueger, like, is the true crossover hit. Like, he crossed male and female, black and white. Everybody liked, and and to say from New Nightmare, you know, he's like Santa Claus. Everybody knows who he is, and everybody liked him.
2: There is, I, I posted a link to the video here in my notes, and I'm going to play a clip of it right now on the show. Um, but, like, Robert Englund, without makeup, goes on a kids' talk <laughs> show my on favorite. fucking
4: my Nickelodeon.
2: Favorite a Nickelodeon to promote like if you were to add up the collective ages of the audience for this talk show
1: please welcome the man who plays Freddy Krueger Robert England
3: <laughs> Shake uh, uh,
0: how, are you doing? I'm how are you fine
3: how are you
0: that was- Those are great movies. They are. Very scary. I've
3: seen all of them.
1: You're sick. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now, in the past, you've been in other movies and television shows, and you played a nice guy in most of your roles. So what made them pick you as Freddy? I don't know. It was strange.
4: I was doing the, uh, the television series V at the time,
0: mm-hmm.
4: and uh, I'd become quite popular. It was the first time I'd ever had fan mail and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the character on V was sort of like uh, a human equivalent of E.T. And uh, I was a little afraid that I was going to get typecast because we had just gone from a very successful miniseries into the regular series. And the Nightmare on Elm Street film sort of fit perfectly in my hiatus in between the miniseries and the series. And originally they wanted a very big man to play the part, and he was to be mute. He wouldn't speak at all. Mm. And uh, I went in, and I was sort of in my punk rock stage at that time. (laughs) My hair was a lot blonder, and I I penciled circles under my eyes, and I wore all black. And I played a staring game with the director, Wes Craven, as he told the the story to me. And I must have done something, you know, right, because I, I got the part
2: they couldn't get in to buy a ticket for the movie without their parents you know like but here he is like with the glove sitting down with like a 16 year old 17 year old host talking about the dream master and like what it's about and why kids should go see it and they it's look
3: insane. so scared yeah they really do i think england is key there as well though right because he he's so clearly just in love with everything about Freddy Krueger and being Freddy Krueger, that he's willing to do crazy shit like that.
2: And so many people that get pigeonholed into a role or they get so defined by a role, they grow to resent it.
4: <laughs> it never happened mm. with Robert Englund. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. He knows he knows what's uh, where his bread is buttered. Because he would show up to anything. He would do anything in full Freddy Krueger makeup. He did all the, uh, the uh, <coughs> what do I say, the retailer promos every year for when the new Elm Street movie was yeah. coming out.
2: There is a, I think I even put it. There's a, uh, you're right. The retailer video, like it's kind of like it. Speaking of being of its error, it's Robert England in in full Freddy makeup, doing a pitch for video store owners on why they should buy extra <laughs> copies at retail of. The dream of the dream child sorry,
4: of the dream warriors. They're terrific. They're terrific.
2: He's talking about like the box office and like not only like how much money he's doing week by week breakdowns of like what it did and what the drop was. And it's like it's crazy. Do you guys remember the 900 number? Yes. Yes.
1: I got in trouble for that shit. (laughs) <laughs> Tell
2: me about your experiences with this. Because I, I have my own story, but I've been talking a lot. So
1: My uh, my only experience with it was that I just didn't grasp the concept of it charging a lot of money to my dad. And, like, dude, like I think I charged up maybe half of our rent bill one month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was granted for a while.
2: That's not good. But I, I, I knew enough... To know that like if i dial that number in my house i would get in a lot of trouble okay like i knew that much at least but i thought that i could get away with it if i when i slept over at my grandmother's house if i could <laughs> go ahead and do that um so what did i do i would like dial the freddy Krueger hotline and I think I rang up like a hundred dollar phone bill and I tried to like lie my way out of it. And my parents are like, these are the nights you stayed over there. Clearly your grandmother is not calling your 77 year old. Your
1: grandma's not calling Freddy Krueger. <laughs> so she, well, he is for everyone. Freddy's for everyone. She, you
2: know, to be fair, she was the, one of the people that got me into horror movies because she used to pay her grandkids like five bucks to stay up at night and watch like the old black and white horror movies with her because she didn't want to watch them on her own and then her and my grandfather would take us to breakfast the next day i remember like cousin's diner in pelham new hampshire we'd go there and my grandfather would be like hey look someone left money on the table you should go get it since it's you know and we would steal tips because we were like three or four years old and had no concept of like you know that's for other people. So my grandfather basically used to steal tips from waitresses <laughs> at breakfast joints. This is the content you crave, listeners. All right? Okay? This is absolutely it. No,
1: what's crazy is like we talk about Freddy Krueger in this movie and Robert England, You know, as this kind of rock star MTV Freddy, or or like how your daughter calls him, like what vacation Freddy? <laughs> which is which is so perfect. But and this movie's so much fun. It's it's such a blast. But there are a couple sequences in this movie that to this day, you know, like I'm turning 40 in a couple months and they still freak me the fuck out. The first shot after Freddy's resurrected and it does that kind of zoom, you know, and like the first time we see Freddy just standing there, like it's shot so interestingly, like it's, it's, it's such a good shot. It's, it's dark. You don't quite see everything of him, you know? That and the scene at the, the dream sequence in the beach where she's running and you see Freddie in the background running in slow motion. That is something that I think will forever be imprinted in my head since the first time I saw it in the theaters. Like I, I still think as much fun as this movie is and how rock star like Freddie is in this movie and kind of comical with the sunglasses, the film's still pretty scary at times.
2: I love the movie theater sequence. I you know it kind of reminds me of like the Maxwell, um, the Maxell tape commercials from the eighties. Like, is it live or is it Memorex? I think it is with a guy getting his like hair blown back because you have like this massive windstorm um, blowing Alice's hair back and everyone else is unaffected by it. And it's just like, again for like a low budget horror movie like this is made for a few million dollars at most to get like this much imagination on screen. And this kind of like, this is a movie like Rennie Harlan took these really big swings. And I can't think of many that like are off the mark in this movie.
4: And I, as much as I love his big swings, two of my favorite moments in the movie, because again, going back to there not being much of a script and like they were shooting this on a fly. Like the first trailer they put out for this movie was just clips from the other movies because nothing had been shot. And they just needed to let audiences know that Freddie was coming back in less than a year. Uh, And I think critics deride now the, uh, the, uh, the karate sequence with Rick. But as a kid, and even now, I think that's pretty imaginative. Like, that's pretty clever. Like, look, we don't have a lot of time. We're not working with a lot of money. What can we do? Let's not have Freddie in here at all. And then... And have, him, and have him do, uh, you know, ninja stuff, which, of course, very popular at the time, like hitting all those pop culture marks, you know, rock soundtrack, ninja stuff, horror movie stuff, everything. And then the part where they just, it's just a matter of editing uh, Alice and Dan uh, in the, the dream loop. And it is, it, 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 that's what a dream really feels like, I think.
2: Yeah, Robert England calls that his favorite sequence in the whole series. When they, I think it's like 3 or 4 times they keep circling back like, you know, like D- Debbie, like freddie has got her like I'm driving and then it just keeps circling back to it and they become a little bit more self-aware each time that they circle back to it. I think England has said like to him like that was the most imaginative and smartest part of any of the movies overall. And
1: Dirt Cheap I think that this film in particular I I think this film in particular really shows uh I mean you know Alex said how this is the Freddy that we you know all knew or expected but also this film really shows the imagination and what could be done in the whole dream realm. You know Mike you had this big part in your notes about lucid dreaming. I'm literally looking at that. And I now. I think that if there's one film in the entire series that takes that and runs with it with as like much success as possible, I think it's the dream master.
2: Okay. Do you mind if I, I speak to this for a couple minutes? Do it. I've put Go it, for I've it. I put it in my notes. I swear to Christ, I've put this in my notes for all of these movies, and I'll finally talk about it this time. Do it. Okay. So lucid dreaming is this idea that the person that experiences a dream or a nightmare, they become self-aware during the dream. And what I mean by that is like you realize you're dreaming – and you can do a number of things to kind of take it over at that point. Um,
4: I've, I've actually done this several times. I mean, I, there's only two moments I can remember. There was a dream where I had a couple years ago. The only thing I've ever actually written down in a dream journal, because I said I have to remember this, was I, was I figured out where I was and took control of the dream. And it was kind of like this weird action movie uh, scenario where I was running from some people. But I, it was set in my, my neighborhood that I grew up in. So once I realized where I was, I was able to navigate it. Even though it wasn't exactly my neighborhood, but I knew it in a dream. And then about three or four weeks ago, I think it, I don't know if this is technically lucid dreaming or not, but because it was a nap, I, I, I might have just been half asleep, half awake, but had that feeling where I was like, oh, this is a dream. Let me see what I can do. So, I made it a point to like grab a scarf off my floor that was sitting there and say, "Okay, then I'll know if I was awake if I wake up when i doing this, if I wake up and it's in my hand, and if I don't, then it was still a dream and then I tried to fly and i I just couldn't get out the window. Could you hover like but i i I, I hovered a little bit mm-hmm. in the room, but I couldn't get out okay. the window."
2: So yeah, well, what I, I love like I've had I remember I went through a really bad breakup with a woman that I thought I was gonna marry, and I remember I had this dream where like we had gotten back together like we were like in my old neighborhood just talking in a car, and I remember the whole time thinking like I know I'm dreaming right now, and I don't care like I don't want to wake up because I was also had like a bad fever at the time I go when I wake up I'm gonna be feverish I'm gonna be sick I'm I'm gonna keep myself asleep as long as possible. So I remember that. So one of the things with lucid dreaming is you can force yourself to wake up and you see that throughout the Elm Street series. Like think Nancy, like smashing her arm against the boiler in order to kind of wake herself up by burning herself. Um, The other thing you can do is like change the parameters of the dream. So think of Kristen in this movie saying dreaming herself into vacation mode like she's on a desert island it's warm it's sunny she's in her cute little bikini that she didn't want to wear for rennie harlan um but like you imagine yourself in a better place or because what we what you're experiencing in these dreams are called idiopathic nightmares or idiopathic dreaming in the elm street series they're not related to any specific trauma like the kids aren't aware of why freddy krueger exists and what their parents did but it's more like the kind of dreams you have when you're an adolescent or a young adult that's when you have your most nightmares so like the day-to-day things that you go through are what you end up having nightmares about and your
4: nightmares are stands in for those anxieties and fears you have okay oh yeah i i know that i every, like you know, some people, oh what does my dream mean every nightmare i have i know exactly what it is referring to and it's usually kind of like right on the nose
1: it's always my lord
4: <laughs> that's no nightmare that's a dream a dream that's that beautiful dream that i want to get dreamed into yeah.
2: So this is basically like all the Elm Street movies are, are do, taking advantage of what we call lucid dreaming. Like Nancy, when she turns her back on Freddy at the end of the first movie, that's an actual technique that like counselors will train patients to do if they want to do lucid dream therapy, which is an actually recognized form of psychotherapy. Like they'll train you to. I confront the monster and tell them they don't have power over you and to turn your back like Wes Craven probably didn't know this, but he was on something. Or you can do what Alice does in this movie and basically go all Muhammad Ali on Freddy and just try to kick the shit out of him. You know, basically, these are recognized things. So I really love that about these movies. And the idea of lucid dreaming is actually discussed in this movie. When Bob Shea, in um, his, you know, acting credit, he's discussing, like, the gatekeeper of dreams. Like, that idea is really what lucid dreaming is all about. It's a really fascinating topic. I've done, like, a bunch of reading on it in preparation for these films. And, you know, when I work with clients, like, we'll talk about their nightmares. Like, they'll write them down, they'll bring them in, and we'll talk about ways that you know what they're rooted in but also like what they might do to change the narrative when they're in that dream it's pretty so, wild i don't know man i just, <laughs> yeah i love it if you want to hear more about these psycho psychotherapy techniques listen to my other show psychoanalysis on the consequence of sound podcast network a new show coming out Every other That was person.
1: good. I liked it. That was slick. You whore. Little freebie. <laughs> I am such a whore. No, um, like honestly, like I, I that's that's so just enthralling to me to hear because I mean nightmares have always been like such a regular for me. Like I have recurring nightmares since childhood, and like I, I, I never understand those and stuff. And I think that that's what attracted me to the series the most is the the fact that these are films. Really about that, you know? Like it's it's really interesting.
4: I, I think I, mean, I I've I beat a dead horse on Twitter particularly about this, but I, I the worst quote unquote worst Nightmare on Elm Street sequel is still a hundred times more imaginative than the best <laughs> Halloween or even the best Friday the Thirteenth sequel. Jerry
2: has steam coming <laughs> out of his
4: ears
1: right now. <laughs> <sighs> <But that> is, <sighs> all right, motherfucker! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, he, you know, no, 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 he shits
4: on Jason, goes to hell enough. He's got to get. I got to get my digs on. on on two, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm
1: kidding. I don't care. Let's go. Cool.
4: The new one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fuck my Lord.
2: <laughs> where, where other horror movie series, what they relied on. And uh, Alex, I think you said this really well earlier. They relied on like an increasing body count. There are six kills in this movie. Like you get more kills than that in a pre-credit sequence in most like Friday the 13th movies, right? You know, here it's like six kills. It's all about
1: imagination. It's all about like. And you fill them. You know, like most body count movies, you don't give a shit. Like like Vanderbilt was saying earlier, like. Like. You know, like, you don't care if anyone dies in The New Blood. You definitely don't care if anyone dies in Jason Takes Manhattan unless you're Brad McCarg. you know? But, like, this movie, you feel every single death because the characters are fleshed out, you know? Like, like every single death hits you in this one. And one thing that I wanted to say on the last episode really quick, but I didn't want to step on our guest toes. Alice gets her strengths, right, from all of her friends, But I do think that she got a good amount from Rick, you know, like, like on the previous episode, you know, like there was observation that, you know, Alice got her her powers from only her female friends. But I'd be damned if Alice didn't, you know, get some fucking baller nunchuck skills from Rick. (laughs) Um, She does the
4: nunchucks. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. Alice's obvious stunt double in a wig does the nunchuck sequence. (laughs) <laughs> but like yeah she did not get that from
1: anybody else exactly man uh, maybe some good like hair tips
4: rick did hey, hey come on we all did we, we all wanted to be rick growing up right i'm not the only one yeah uh, uh.
1: i still do i still do
3: i wanted to be Freddy, man <laughs> <laughs> alex how are you holding up over there man i think i might have fallen asleep actually okay and now kruger's kruger's here and (laughs) don't fall asleep
2: um i want to be respectful of your time so if you do have to duck out because it's so late over there i totally understand but i'm cool man we're gonna try to keep kicking it over to you otherwise all right (laughs) so um so we talked about the intersection of like horror movies and MTV here. I made a note. Like I fucking love this soundtrack. I absolutely adore this. I know everyone talks about Dawkin and like the um, Dream Warriors. The best song in this franchise, Drama Rama,
1: anything, anything. Dude, Drama-Rama, there is nothing better than that song. And I'm sorry, like, Dream Warriors fans, I I know I'm already, like, your your uh, punching bag for uh, not being a fan of that movie whatsoever, but fuck wow. Dawkins when it comes to wow. Drama-Rama. Drama-Rama, that song, Shots oh fired. my god, that is one of my ten it's favorite so songs of all time. One of my ten favorite songs of It's so fucking good.
4: And it's not available on the original soundtrack album. That blows my mind. Because that song
2: features so prominently throughout the movie, that it's that it's not on there like
4: absolutely blows my mind. It it, it was absolutely wild. It's yeah, it's not on the original uh, soundtrack. Um, uh, but I my one of my favorite songs is uh, "Don't Be Afraid of Your Dreams," which doesn't play until the end mm-hmm. of the end credits mm-hmm. by Go West, and that was written by Gary Getzman, who co-wrote that thing you do, or at least what uh, was part of the movie, and. Um, Bobbin Tonight off mm. of the Fright Night soundtrack.
2: That's awesome, man. I mean, These little tidbits you just don't get anywhere else. But you have, like, <laughs> the pre-I Touch Myself to vinyls with a, a track off of this, Billy Idol, It probably, like, like, this is right around the time of Ford Fairlane, right? Like, I know that Billy Idol's going to have, like, the Rock the Cradle of Love signal, which...
1: Well, you have, like, so many, so many people yeah. on this.
2: I think so. So it like launches like Idol into another stratosphere for a little bit of time. Blondie is on the soundtrack. Like this is a really good mix of music
1: overall. Like it's a killer, absolutely killer. Yeah, this this was Rennie Harlan's film right before Ford Fairlane, wasn't it? Didn't he do it right after this? Yeah. Well, even even Tuesday night song, man.
4: What a what a, what a great opening. I think the only other musical opening that gives that a run for its money is the Goo Goo Dolls one in Freddy's Dead. Yes. Yep. Very good. That's a very well put. Which, as much as I enjoy Freddy's Dead, I think that the Goo Goo Dolls opening in Freddy's Dead sets you up for a much better, much different movie. <laughs> hmm
2: I agree. It still <laughs> blows my mind that we could have had that Peter Jackson treatment for that. And I love Freddy's Dead. But then you hear Peter Jackson's idea for the movie where, like, kids would knock themselves out to go to sleep so they can beat the crap out of Freddy (laughs) (laughs) and we don't get that
0: that is genius oh man,
2: so yeah, this is like to me like the best soundtrack overall Um, where did I want to go from there, oh the easter eggs in this movie like this one is filled with them, so you mentioned the dog earlier, Jake the dog did anyone catch the name of the dog in this movie?
1: That's Jason. What's funny is about that is basically Jason is the dog. And in Freddy vs. Jason, the whole movie, Freddy's basically calling Jason his little bitch, like his dog.
2: I think that's where Shannon and Swift got the idea. There you go. Um, everyone talks about like the Craven Diner, and that's a really cute little reference, but outside of the movie theater, I thought there was really kind of a couple little nods to new line cinema history, you have like the um, reefer madness is on the um, display. And I think it's, what's playing as well in the theater for a time. And reefer madness is basically the first, like when Bob Shea was a copyright lawyer that had aspirations of being like a filmmaker and producer, he basically saw how much money reefer madness was making on college campuses and he did a little digging into the copyright law for it and saw that like no one really owned it so he got the copyright on Reefer madness and started to distribute this movie throughout college campuses like it's how he made it turn to buck um, and then there's a poster for john waters hairspray that is like just outside underneath the marquee as you're walking into the theater and shay and rachel talalay had a long working relationship with John Waters. Like they distributed a lot of his work throughout the 1970s. So I thought those were neat little easter eggs and kind of nods to New Line Cinema's history that weren't like glaringly obvious.
1: That and it speaks on what you said earlier about New Line never really being ashamed of a Nightmare on Elm Street, whereas Paramount was always embarrassed by it. You know, I, I think Bob Shea, you know, Rachel Talley, Sarah Risher, all these people from New Line, they appreciated where they came from and they appreciated what got them there. I mean, it's no coincidence that New Line was, I mean, even by their, their own selves, like referred to as the house that Freddie built. You know, they, they had reverence towards the, the series. They wanted to keep it going as much as they could. And that speaks volumes on how much, you know, they took it, how how much it meant to them.
2: And they are about, I think, two years away from, like, the Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtle movies hitting and then just launching into another stratosphere in terms of, like, where they were as a studio. And then The Mask, which is an absolute phenom that is going to, like, make New Line, like, one of the hit production companies
3: and film studios of, like, the 90s. For a while, so man, I'd still love to see the uh, the out and out horror version of that movie, there.
2: Yeah, because that
3: graphic novel <laughs> is dark. If I remember, like it yeah. is a dark, dark thing. All
4: right, and so... a little new line history. Uh, what's the movie that's playing at the uh, movie theater that Alice is at? <clears throat> Reefer Madness, which was the first movie that they picked up for distribution. You just missed me say that when Did you were up it? walking around. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was afraid I was going to – yeah, because I got up to go do something, and I was like, damn it, he's probably going to do it while I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> but you I didn't want I also. I also didn't want to miss it. I thought we. I could be real slick about it and nobody would even know that I left. Oh. I'm
2: leaving that in, Mike. I'm totally oh. leaving <laughs> that in. Um, I, again, I, deserve, I deserve that. That's all right. That This is the content our listeners crave. Um <laughs> So, you know, let's talk just finally about the special effects of this movie. Because I think, like, insane. You have Kevin Yeager coming back. Screaming Matt George. Howard Berger, who would go on to form KNB on board. He's the one applying Freddy's makeup. Berger's <laughs> really funny because he talks about this experience and how, like, he was hearing... Um, Robert England's stories for the first time. Like, this guy ever shut the fuck up. You know? And the answer is no. Robert England
1: does not shut up. He does not. Well, even Steve Johnson, I mean, that huge chest thing at the end, you know? Having all those people on there. Steve Johnson put his wife at the time, Linnea Quigley, inside of that chest. You know? Like, it. I think when it comes to like special effects artists this film had some of the greatest. I mean like you said Kevin Yeager, some of the yes. KMD guys, Screaming Mad George, I mean goddamn society, you know. Uh
2: John Carl,
1: John Carl uh, Beatler, yeah, all well these guys. I mean well. like yep. do you understand yeah. how much yeah. cocaine was probably on that set? Like these were these were like <laughs> rock stars.
4: John Carl and John Carl Beatler, he was he was off of doing uh New Blood like he worked on Jason and Freddy in the same year. Is he the only person that can say that?
1: Probably,
2: yeah. Uh in the same year, yes, by No Burger also did a lot of the effects on Jason Goes to Hell. Yes. So, so different perfect. year, but yeah. Um but do you think like Beekler would look at what they were able to get away with theatrically for the Dream Master and then look at how gutted a new blood was and be like, "What the fuck?" Like Who's... But,
4: but that's the difference between the fantasy mm-hmm. element of the Elm Street movies and the uh, more realistic, the for lack of a better term, on the uh, the uh, the Jason movies. Which reminds me of a story about uh, I think it was Waxwork too. Anthony Hickox did two cuts. One that like there's a scene where eyeballs pop out of the head. He if he put like the popping sound like a comic book, it would get a, a low. It would get an R. But if it just had the eyes popping out. Then it gets an uh, unrated.
2: Oh, that's a bummer. And that those prints probably no longer exist, right?
1: There is some. There is some really good gore that was left out of Waxwork too. Really quickly, like I I supervised the image gallery on the Vestron Blu-ray, so I I took a trip to the set photographer from Waxwork 2, and I had to look through 700 photos that he took, and there is so much that was shot for that movie that they had to cut out.
2: But I mean in terms of like the actual sequences that were shot.
1: Oh no, no. They they were at his house. I went there, I, I looked through all of them with a the magnifying glass, I chose the few hundred that I thought were best, and those are the ones that were on the Blu ray. Yeah, which you would never get to see, which is really Oh, probably not. Yeah, no. No, but it's it's when talking about the special effects, like these guys were rock stars at that time. You know, and, and I, I said the cocaine thing as a joke, but like you know, Steve Johnson's made no, uh, you know, secret, made no secret that, like, that's what was going on around that time. And this is the guy who got fired from Predator when the producers came in his hotel room and he still had coke on his nose. You know what
2: I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, there's the, Daken tells a story of, like, snorting coke with Robert Englund off the glove. You can, yes, that was, I, I uh,
4: featured that in my Consequences Sound video essay about the, uh, about the marketing of Freddy Krueger, I found it doing research. It was in some Florida newspaper, and I'd never seen this story before. But it uh, it tickled me, and yeah. then it made the rounds to all the horror sites. Like
2: off <laughs> of that, I wonder if he did the same thing with the kids from Nickelodeon after. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: well,
1: those guys, those guys were just nuts. I'm sure a lot of them have calmed down, but like. Last year, I took my kids, my wife and I took our kids to Monster Palooza, and one of my son's favorite movies is Blade Two. And we were waiting in line for the the Creep Show panel, and I was like, "Uh, hey Dexter, that's my son." I was like, "Hey Dexter, there's Steve fucking Johnson just drinking," and and he's like, "What?" And I was like, "Yeah, he did the effects for Blade 2. But everyone and I likes right my son over to Steve Johnson whose eyes were like red as blood, (laughs) bloodshot. (laughs) And I go, hey, I don't want to bother you. I know you're like having fun or doing whatever you do, but my son loves Blade 2. And he goes, that movie's older than your son. And I go, yes, (laughs) I know. And I was like, "Can you get a picture?" And there's a picture of my son standing next to a bloodshot-eyed yeah, Steve Johnson holding a beer. Like, it's... Look, I don't want to
4: advocate for uh, cocaine use and bad behavior, but cocaine use and bad behavior gave us gave us a lot of great art through the '60s, '70s, '80s, and beyond. <laughs> it really did. And uh, yeah, it, much more fun than marijuana. Yeah. I would agree. I've never done, never done, Uh, never never uh, done uh, done coke, but. Everybody (laughs) likes something different. Not everybody likes Valort, but nobody's perfect. And everybody, everybody everyone yes. absolutely <laughs> likes.
2: I think it's the theme of this show. Can you imagine? Can
4: you imagine listening to Robert England, Robert England, tell a story after a couple of rails?
1: I, uh, watch the Phantom of the Opera Blu-ray. I think I'm going to order that today. Anyways, I think yes, we Dream have a, I
2: think we have a Patreon pick now for
4: um, our the month. Oh, of that's September. a really good. That's a. That's a really good flick, too. I really liked his uh, his mm-hmm. fan of the opera. He, yeah, I
2: have never seen it. I've heard good things about it's it. It's great. Dwight Little, season, man. So Dwight that's Little. That's right, from Halloween 4, what Mike uh, Vanderbilt just called the least imaginative Halloween movie of all time.
4: No, 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 that would be part oh, yeah. five. No, I take the fact, no, five has imagination because I love the idea of the man in black and just, this, this, like, the execution of the man in black.
1: Yeah. I'm looking for the closest noose right now. <laughs> hey,
2: I think both Jerry and I are Team
1: Tina. Like, we actually don't mind... I like Part 5. Oh, you know what? See, for years, really quickly, for years, Brad McCarg and I lobbied to do the Fantastic Fest debates around e- that, with each other to argue and then fist fight till we fucking bleed over Evil Dead 2. Uh, that dude, if it ever comes back after this COVID shit, Vanderbilt and I... Halloween. Well, I'll tell you what. I have done the fantastic, uh, the, the feud,
4: which is the trivia thing. Yeah. The yeah. Fantastic. Uh, uh, but no, the, the fights is something else. What's that called?
1: Uh, yeah. The, the debates, debates.
4: <laughs> the debates. I absolutely, I'm due to do the debates. So Let's that do would, it. uh, Let's do I'm it. into that. I will be fueled on nothing but goodwill. No malort, no cocaine. Just going to train the whole deal. All so right. So bad behavior.
2: Hey, speaking of training and fighting. This is oh, completely unrelated. Completely unrelated, but Sylvester Stallone yesterday announced that they're going to do a, a director's cut around Rocky IV where they remove Polly's robot. And it's someone that had a sexual awakening around Polly's robot in Rocky IV. I'm very disturbed by this news.
1: I, You know, it was a bummer. I, I wish they would remove Sylvester Stallone from directing that movie. no. I'm joking. No, I'm I'm joking. I love Rocky IV, actually.
4: I like the robot. It's pure 80s. To bring it back home, let's talk (laughs) about training and Stallone and action movies. The best, my favorite segment, my favorite sequence in a Nightmare on Street 4 to Dream Master is when Alice prepares to do Battle with Freddy because it's it's right out of a Rambo movie. Right down to the... The way it's shot, yeah. Right down to the the hard rock version of Don't Be Afraid of Your Dreams, which I've never found on that recording anywhere other than the movie because it's not composed by Craig Safan, who did the score, because uh, uh, Jay Blake from Scored to Death asked him for me for his podcast. And I don't believe it's by Go West. It may be. I don't know. But it's just a slightly different uh, uh, recording of that. Let's talk about how great that segment
1: is. Oh, it's great. The way it's shot and edited. Oh, totally. It's straight out of Rocky. It's straight out of uh, First Blood 2. There's, there's, oh, totally. There's so much in that. I, I, I think that's what, that's another thing that just makes this movie great. It's not just a great horror film, it's kind of like the 80s horror equivalent to every action movie that we grew mm-hmm. up loving, too. And part of what I love about
2: this movie and this era is. It's very much like, you know, I think there was a a Twitter thread later last week, like, what is going to be like the iconic horror movie characters of this day and age? And there's a debate like, or why aren't there any? And I think part of the reason is like. Nowadays, you have so much entertainment at your fingertips. Like, if I don't like a movie on Netflix and I'm 15 minutes into it, like, I'm hitting the back button on my Roku and finding something else. And there are nights where I'll spend like 90 minutes looking for something to watch and then five minutes watching something. Back then, like, you would go and you would rent two movies, and if they sucked, it's like, sorry, dude. I paid my like five bucks for this rental and this is what I'm watching tonight. Like I don't have a hundred million things. So you would rent like dream and you would like rent a movie like dream master because you knew what you were getting so it was like, I, I can still picture the local video store in my town that I would bike to, exactly where the horror section is, like how many steps it would take to walk there. I remember like by the front counter, they had the quote unquote wine list, which is where they kept all the adult movie covers that you would flip through when the staff wasn't looking. Um, but you would like you would rent a movie like Dream Master over and over again because you knew what you were getting and you knew you were going to be fucking entertained.
3: I think you do have horror icons today, but they seem to exist outside of the movie, which I think is which I think is different to with, with things like Freddy. Although although obviously he did exist outside of the movie on lunchboxes and um, Viagra pajamas and stuff, but like the you you know you look at the Babadook for example, and, or, or Annabelle. And it's all sort of like memes and, and they appear on video games and, and YouTube videos and stuff. And it exists in that world outside of the movie. No one that like loves those characters is necessarily rushing to see the movies of them. <laughs> Whereas with with Freddy and, and, and Jason and those sort of icons and stuff, it was so much about the film itself um, and, and going and finally getting to see them. You know, everything else was sort of teaser for the movie sure yeah you're right like so much of this generation like their entertainment is like
2: tiktok videos on youtube and like you can go right now and you can find like 500 videos on youtube explaining what annabelle is and as a kid like you may like have never seen that movie but you probably know that character better than people that have like watched it multiple times although why you would watch an annabelle movie multiple times
1: Unless you're doing a podcast like this, yeah, torture. Well, that that and the like in the '80s, especially word of mouth is what made these a lot of these things iconic. You know, there wasn't the internet to where you'd have, like you said, TikTok videos and YouTube exposes and all these. You know, uh, over like just so much content to where it would explain everything. When I was a kid on the playground. You know, that's how I discovered Freddy and so many other things. You know, kids were talking about these things and they made them almost legendary and iconic before you even experienced them. Then you experience them and then you get all those things. I mean, I had Freddy pajamas. I had that pull string doll the moment it fucking dropped. You know what I mean? Like, they, it was like a huge event, these movies were. Now you know, you know, everything going into the movie that it takes the, like, it takes the iconic elements out of the out of any movies that come out and
4: it this I think something uh, that I had forgotten about was that a big part of what made these horror icons so popular in the '80s was Ronald Reagan videoing a measure uh, that regulated what could be advertised or how much advertising could be on children's television so you had toy manufacturers start to produce more cartoons and you could advertise anything to kids, including Freddy Krueger
2: yeah you know what that leads to the thing i wanted to end on a really brief discussion of freddy's nightmares which in some markets played at 5 p.m in the (laughs) afternoon yeah that's a big reason why the show was only on for two years because parents were fucking horrified that at five o'clock in the afternoon,
1: I watched that show religiously when it came on. Around the same time same. that I would also watch War of the Worlds around that same mm-hmm. time, it was such a huge it was such a huge part of my week because I was so into N- a Nightmare on Elm Street and like that series and Freddy at that time, you know. And what's crazy about that show is it had, you know, a it had one of the scariest intros of all time. That intro to that show is scarier than most of the films in the franchise. <laughs> no, I'm not saying all of them, but I mean that intro to that series is way scarier than fucking anti-abortion I, dream child.
4: I, I don't know. Tales from the Dark Side opening is the scariest is the scariest television opening of all time.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not arguing okay, that. I'm saying right, what right. as opposed to like the later films Fair, in the Nightmare series. But also from that pilot, you thought you were getting something different. You got Freddy's origin story directed by Toby fucking Hooper. Toby Hooper. You know what I mean? Like, with Robert England returning. Um, and it's not a good... It's quick not that note good. on that. Yeah, actually,
2: quick note on that. I just saw an article today that said actually Steven Spielberg directed the pilot. Dude, <laughs> you're
1: gonna get that Twitter account coming after you hard. Yet again. Uh, you know what? I, I, I'm here for this kind of
4: uh, rabble-rousing and venom. I like this.
1: No, there's, there's, I don't, am sorry, I don't, Jerry.
2: I didn't, no, mean, it's okay. I didn't mean to
1: knock. No, no, you no, off no, it's okay. There. No, I don't know if you guys know, but there's a Twitter account that any mention of Steven Spielberg and Poltergeist, they'll jump at you like Toby Hooper. No, Toby Hooper. Uh, but no, you get a pilot Freddie George story directed by Toby Hooper to where you watch that pilot and you think you're going to get a new Freddy story every week. And what you get is, basically like Tales from the Crypt. Well, yeah. Which, I mean, there were a lot of bad episodes, but there were some real gems in that one, and there's a lot of like big stars that got to start with I, I
4: never watched Freddy's Nightmares because in my market, it aired uh, about midnight, like after Saturday Night Live on uh, Channel 50, which would have been WPPWR, which has shown a lot of this. They showed War to Worlds. They showed Superboy. They showed oh uh, nice Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, but yeah, I remember watching... Uh, the first one I remember watching was the one where the kid was bleeding from his head. Uh, I think he was already dead, but he was—he didn't know he was dead. He was like shot. He was shot at like a um, burger joint. Yeah, something and like that. And I yeah. remember that was the only one I watched. I fell asleep halfway through it because it was fucking midnight, and uh, yeah, just never stayed up late enough to watch it ever again.
2: I would watch this. It was like Channel sixty eight in Boston. And it was this and then the Friday the 13th, the series.
4: Back yeah, back that aired on Channel 50 at like five in the afternoon on Saturdays.
1: But that was a little more they tame had, than uh, Freddy's Nightmares. They Higgard. had some really interesting episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. I remember there was one, if I remember correctly, there was one that I, I was freaked out about uh, like as a kid. But now it's kind of silly where this guy worked at a pizza joint. And I think bullies came in or something like that. So he started chopping them up and turn, and putting them in the pizzas. <laughs> oh, Jesus But like Freddie, like Robin England camped it up so hardcore for these episodes (laughs) that I feel Mm -hmm. like, I feel like it was like what Alex said at the beginning of this episode to where in the later sequels, we got a little too much of that camp.
2: Yeah, I I would agree. And I think it was like by, by, and we're going to talk about Dream Child next week. I think by that time it was like too much of a good thing you know, to kind of overstate, and I will still like watch dream child and I find it really entertaining. I really, I love Freddy's dead. I, you know, my feelings on new nightmare are well documented. I think that it takes itself way too serious. Uh, although I have a growing appreciation for it. Um, as the movie goes on, it gets a bit stronger as it gets a bit more surreal. But like these movies are still like, like Mike, like you had said, like there's so much imagination in them that you can't help but enjoy them. All right. It is very late here. It is very late where you are, Alex. So why don't we let you out of here? But before you go, tell us a little bit about what you have coming up. Tell us about your films that we can watch right now. And what you're doing creatively during COVID to kind of stay active or how that's put a damper in what you're doing.
3: Uh, Well, you can watch uh, Follow the Crows. My first film is available on Amazon Prime, um, which you can watch that for free if you've got Prime membership uh, and tell me how much you hate it um you can watch (laughs) you can uh hopefully i've got a tentative date for onus now actually release date uh with the distributors high octane pictures um that should be coming out on the 1st of december um so that'll be quite exciting and that'll be available in stores and all that bullshit um and then you can watch that and tell me how much of a genius i am <laughs> um, it's, it's one of the two extremes it's either just a shit film or the best movie ever um and uh, uh yeah in, in terms of what i've been up to uh during during covid i've been been writing a few scripts um you know uh trying to sort of get things done uh that i thought i could do in lockdown i was i was writing a uh a zoom uh based horror movie and then host came out um (laughs) so that was depressing
2: so maybe you could do that but actually have it be entertaining
3: (laughs) i enjoyed it i enjoyed it it was fun for what it was um Well, for what it
2: was, it was a steamy <laughs> bob kidding. We but I do feel there. like that's done
3: now. <laughs> so, trying to figure out something else to do. Um, but, I mean... It-
1: Twitter whore film?
3: A what? A Twitter, Twitter whore film? film? <laughs> it
1: already is. It already is.
3: I just have people log on Twitter and pay me for it. So, here,
2: actually, I do, I do want to ask, and I'll say this about hosts. Like, I just heard
3: the director, Rob
2: Hunter, on um, Scarred for Life recently. And it does make me want to go back and re-watch the movie because he's so likable that, like, all right, maybe I just missed the boat. I'll give it another rewatch because it's something where, like, I want to see him make more stuff because he comes off, like, really likable and knowledgeable. So, um, listeners, go and check out that Scarred for Life podcast episode. But, Alex, what do you think of this idea of, like, movies not having to be, like, 80, 90 minutes? Like, one nice thing about hosts comes in at less than an hour and now that you have all these like streaming platforms and not quibby we don't want to do quibby but like you know (laughs) but what do you think of this idea of like the story is the story no matter how
3: long or short it is um i quite like it i think i think it's something that only really works thanks to streaming platforms but it would also be quite nice to maybe see like the return of the double bill but for these shorter movies, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I like it, and I think it. I think it's a way, you know, especially if you're doing a return of a double bill to like theatrical releases as well. It's a way to get smaller movies out there. Um, you know, the shorter the movie is, in theory, the less it costs, um, and then the more you're going to make back from it. So maybe that'll help as well. Um, I definitely think it will be useful. Uh, in terms of sort of the creative aspect of filmmaking to just be allowed to have your film be as long as it needs to be because there's a lot of filler out there at the moment um more often than not i find myself watching more recent movies and going this feels like it's been added in to pad out the runtime you know
0: (laughs) yeah
2: i hear you there all right alex thank you so much for and where can our listeners find you online
3: uh you can find me on twitter at alex secker um and you can read my blog on alexsecker.com if you want that'd be cool
2: all right Why don't you go to bed? (laughs) I will. And I'll have terrible nightmares. Try not to have any nightmares. (laughs) And next time we have you on, what we're going to do is we're going to record at 9 o'clock in the morning your time. (laughs) So that, like, it's 6 o'clock here and 3 o'clock in the afternoon Jerry's time. Or 3 in the morning Jerry's time to make up for tonight. All right? That's all right. No worries. All right. Can't wait to have you back on, man. Thank you. All right. Mike. Tell us a little Uh, bit about the the music music box of horrors. Horrors. We're going to have thirty-one
4: days or thirty-one nights, rather, through the month of October at the uh, Chicago Drive-In in in Pilsen, which is a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Uh, We got we're going to have double features on Friday and Saturdays, and Sundays. We're going to have something special going on as well. Uh, Had a great talk with the programming team, and uh, you can expect some populist choices, but. Don't worry, you're going to get a lot of surprises, some guests, some fun events. I think it's going to be a really good time. So if you're in the Chicago area, get a car, find a friend who has a car, find a way to make it out to this thing. Um, well, I was working with the Music Box on Cinepocalypse earlier this year. And of course, you know, I don't need to tell everybody that it all everything kind of went to shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, uh, Ryan, the GM at the Music Box, uh, liked what I was doing as far as eventizing, and wanted to see what else I could do. And he wanted to put together a small team for this thing. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Connections, man.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It looks like and it's Katie, Wright from, and you, it's Katie and Wright from and the AV Club and Will a- AV Club. Who her work on horror, her writing on horror is so good. I always love reading her stuff. Um, and what's going on with Halloweenies? Like, you guys have recently started the Patreon, and it looks like, it looks like you're kicking franchises to the curb after Friday the 13th. For the,
4: well, for the Patreon, we're doing, we want to do stuff outside of the franchise, because we get a lot of requests, uh, for stuff that one-offs, or maybe there's only two movies, or then there's only three movies, and the Patreon's kind of a perfect way to do it. So we have the Near Dark episode, which I won't be on, but I will definitely be listening to. And uh, Mike Rothman and I are going to be doing an audio commentary for one of my favorite horror comedies, uh, An American Werewolf in London. <gasps> that's
2: my all time favorite movie.
4: Yeah. It's, it's one of my. Yeah, that's my all time favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, 1981, horror, 1981 werewolf movies, uh, I go with uh, American Werewolf over to Howling.
2: And I love The Howling, but no, like, my 40th birthday. We rented a theater, a little theater that I used to book indie horror movies and my wife rented the theater invited friends and family and that is the movie we watched for my now she originally told people it was going to be rocky but then she brought like the dvd for rocky 5 and we're like no i'm not (laughs) watching so we pulled an audible and did for my non-horror loving friends and family they were disgusted but it's my all-time favorite movie the clicking sound you hear is me firing an email to rothman reminding him i'm part of the consequence family (laughs) and i'm elbowing my way into that um but either way, like I will become a Patreon subscriber to Halloweenies.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of there's, there's a couple different tiers. I don't think it breaks the bank, um, and I mean everybody's starting one now, so it's hard to decide where you want your hard earned money to go to. But I I think we're gonna we're gonna put be putting out some pretty quality content for everybody and we all have a new episode dropping on uh the 13th we're going to be discussing friday the 13th the new part seven the new blood with uh gaily dreadful who just appeared on the previous episode of uh pot and a pendulum excellent um, that's excellent. I only refer so, to people as their Twitter handles. That's the only yeah, way. Yeah, that's I know all. That.
2: That's, there are no real <laughs> names anymore. There is no real life. It's
4: just. I, I never understood media. why film festivals didn't uh, require that you put your Twitter handle, sounded, or at least uh, provide a space to like put you your Twitter handle on your badge. Because that,
3: that's rather. Te- there are no real names. Only television names. <laughs> 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 there you go. That's really
2: it at this point in 2020. Um, what else did I have to ask you? I forget.
4: So fuck it. All right. Uh, oh, how are the bars in Chicago at this point? You know like, what? Is it? The where I am, we're fine. We're still not letting. I am in the suburbs. My bar is in the suburbs of Chicago, so we are allowed because there's different rules throughout the throughout the state. But we are mm-hmm. allowed to have people inside, but we are not doing it. We're still remaining uh, patio seating because it seems any place that does open inside, even when they can, ends up shutting down for a couple days because somebody gets it. Mm -hmm. So, And as bad as the Chicago winters can be, you can usually push through till about November with outdoor seating if you provide heaters. Mm -hmm. And people still smoke, so people still like to sit outside. Okay. So we're doing fine.
2: So the crowds have been good. Everyone's been pretty (laughs) understanding.
4: They've they've gotten better, uh, I don't I don't have to fight with people about putting the masks on. Good. Ever Excellent. I, I, yeah. Well, you know, you're always welcome
2: back, dude, and
4: Dude, I love, I love yeah. coming on this show. It's always so much this fun. The show
2: rules. And like I, I think I've said this before, like we're determined to take Halloweenies down from within since we have such a overlap <laughs> in what we do. Um, but no, I really enjoy what you guys are doing. Like when a new Halloweenies episode drops uh, every month, like it's the first thing I listen to. Um, it's just, a, it's really fun. And I think having you and uh, Gerber being back after missing a lot of the, Elm Street episodes, like it's brought it to a, another like really fun oh, level.
4: I I can't imagine doing the show without Gerber because I think he's such a perfect host. Yeah. The amount of research he does and uh, the ability to steer that fucking mm-hmm. ship sometimes is yes. impressive.
2: Yeah, you guys are much more structured than we are. We are much more like fucking <laughs> Animal but,
4: House here. Not, not, you, know, you need different things. I've been on podcasts that are structured that are dull. I've been on ones that are. Uh, You know, loose that are boring uh, or uh, that are exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, you never, you never know what you're gonna get. But yeah, you can always count on me for at Halloweenies for some adult cinema trivia and some uh, music trivia, music trivia minutia. And we
2: had, we we've had guests that are like, so what's the format? It's like, eh, you know, we're pretty loosey goosey. Format, formats are fuck that. All right, Jerry, how about you, my friend? You we talked about that Tony Todd interview that was out later this week. But what's coming up for you, my friend? Uh, I
1: have a lot of writing I'm doing. Uh, I was hired to write uh, a piece on the great areas of friendship found in Point Break. <laughs> so that's fun. Uh, yeah. I have a, Another Catherine Bigelow. Right. I, I have a piece on Ginger Snaps that I was asked to write. Uh, other than that, I'm currently scoring this really awesome film called Visions of Sonia Green. Uh, I, I think I've said it before. It's like David Lynch doing Cormac McCarthy. It's so fucking weird. But I'm having such a blast doing that. I have a new EP that just came out recently called Submission Tracks. Uh, check it out. It's uh, Twitter is at official rdfg Rainy Days for Ghost. Uh, it, it's pretty kinky. Uh, it was going to be called Audio Sex Tape for a very specific reason. If you listen to the last track, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my interest is peaked. <laughs> Give it a listen. Tell me what you think. But other than that, that's what I'm doing.
2: So for our listeners, um, for me, uh, by this point, the latest episode of psychoanalysis out. Jen, Laura, and I. Um, Breakdown 2012 Sinister uh, We talk about sinister and paranoia And we spend a lot of time Talking about Ethan Hawke And his sweater um, So if that gets your fancy going Definitely give that a listen Our next episode will be On The Burbs and Fright Night Again with the continuing theme of paranoia That show has been a lot of fun to do You can get that over on Consequence.net Or you can find it anywhere you get your podcast. Um, for us, we do have a Patreon. We ask you go there, go to patreon.com, pod, and the Pendulum. Tiers start at $2, and that gets you a bonus episode every month. It gets you into our Slack channel. Um, I'm going to probably start doing some more mini episodes over there. People seem to really like the end of these shows where you hear Ada and I talk about the Elm Street movies. So we might do these, like, 20-minute, um, mini-pods together and just throw them in the Patreon for listeners. We're putting all our Elm Street bonus content up there for listeners first before we combine it to a, uh, one large episode. So, you know, we think we are well worth your $2 investment. And I know the show is free. It always will be free. But I'll say this. If you don't give us $2 a month, you're freeloading son of a bitch. <laughs> and I will eventually... <laughs> You know, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're worse than Hitler, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> for not giving us. The, all right, that part will edit out. That part we <laughs> will cut. That's a little bit extreme. Also, but, really,
1: quickly, uh, we you, sir, epi- really you, quickly, we said this in the last episode. Really quickly, we said this in the last episode, and I'll say it again. Uh, tomorrow, we record. We're recording a chat with Alice herself, Lisa Wilcox, yes. which will be uh, our Patreon uh, uh, subscribers will get to hear that first. Uh, but after we get all these Elm Street alumni interviews. We're going to compile them into one big episode that everybody can hear, so look forward I, to that.
2: I know we keep saying all these, but everyone keeps saying no. They're like, yeah you know, we,
1: well, we have a few in the works. We got, a, we
2: got a few in the works, but all right, listeners, we'll be back next week with the Dream Child. I am not sure who's guesting on that. I got to reach out and confirm, but we do, I think, have a couple people lined up. We hope you've enjoyed these two parts on the Dream Master. I think this is a really fun discussion, and I think, like, the two discussions we have were like kind of like flip discussions. They couldn't have been um, different from one another overall, but uh, really enjoyable two episodes. We'll be back with the dream child. I have no idea what we're going to do after we're done the Elm Street series. I feel like I'm going to just crash because these have been my favorite movies to talk about. And I hope you guys have enjoyed them, listening to them as much as I have had in kind of putting them together. So until next week.
4: Don't fall asleep.
3: From bad
4: to verse. People say I'm crazy mad. But you see, I've got a curse. Because when I'm good, I'm very bad. And when I'm bad,
1: I'm worse. Don't miss the most misunderstood ghoul in showbiz on Freddy's Nightmares.
4: Saturday nights at 10 on WKZF, channel 68.
2: Hey, everybody. I am back with Ada Noonian. How are you? All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Because we talked about Freddy, the Dream Master, last week. So what do we have this week?
0: We are going to talk about Freddy's TV show.
2: Which was called Freddy's Nightmares. Ran for two years, I think in 88 to 91. Um, Yeah, so the episode we're going to talk about is included on the Nightmare on Elm Street Blu-ray collection. Watch your finger, honey. I don't want you to cut yourself there, that pin. Um... And it was called Killer Instinct, starring Lori Petty, who we all know from Tank Girl, and was directed by Mick Garris. So, Ada, what are your initial thoughts on this show?
3: The
0: crystal is pretty, but the actual necklace looks weird.
2: Well, that was the thing. Okay, so that was what your description of the necklace was, but the show itself. I don't think many people were turning into Freddy's nightmares to get um, ideas on jewelry. <laughs>
0: well, what was the
2: episode about?
0: First of all, it was about um, a girl whose mom died. She inherited a necklace from her, and if she imagined something, it would happen, and it would usually involved somebody cutting their finger off,
2: someone dying or getting really hurt. Right? Yeah. So, what was the girl doing? Like, was she like what sport was she doing?
0: She was running track.
2: She was running track. So she would try to imagine herself winning races, right? Uh-huh. So what happened at the um so who what were some of the what were some of the cool things that happened in the episode?
0: A dude cut his finger off. How? Well, he was um making bologna, I think, mm-hmm. and then while he was cutting it, he cut his finger off.
2: And he was a really gross dude, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't want to look at him. He was
2: being a dirty pervert and saying disgusting things to the girl. So she imagined him cutting his fingers off, right? Uh-huh. And then what else happened? There was a teacher that was being a jerk.
0: And then he was talking about the industry of cotton, and then he started spewing out cotton.
2: Yeah, and he choked to death. So how did that part of the episode end? At the end, they have a race. It's... The girl with the crystal, and then her rival. And then, um, how does the race end?
0: She dies.
2: How does she die?
0: Um, the rival gets the crystal and imagines her um, when her neck hits the um, rope thingy that you. Yeah. yeah, that thing. She gets her head chopped off and dies. Yes.
2: Yeah, or a head comes flying off. There's blood spewing. So they used to show that show in some places at five o'clock in the afternoon, really? right around the time we would sit down to dinner. What do you think would happen if um, you and mom and I sat down for dinner and watched that? For, what would mom say?
0: I don't. Can we like not watch a show like this yes. while we're eating dinner? Yes. She'd
2: want to watch something else, right? Uh uh-huh. Okay. So can you imagine like that would run at that time of day?
0: No. That's kind of
2: crazy, isn't it?
0: Also, um, how was it Freddy's TV show if it's pretty much an entirely different thing? Yeah. But they, like, put Freddy's face in it, so it's Freddy's yep. TV show. Yeah,
2: how much is Freddy in this, would you say? For a 45 um, minute show, how long was Freddy in it?
0: I'm going to say about three minutes.
2: Maybe three minutes if we're even lucky. I thought maybe like a minute and a half.
0: And, like, he's only there, so, um, like,. For the So it's Freddy's TV show? Yes.
2: He would just tell kind of... And that's what almost all of the shows were like. There wasn't a lot of Freddy in them. There was a, hmm. maybe a few episodes where he's in them a bit more. But usually he would come in and he would like introduce it. And then he would come in the middle. And then he would come in at the end. And he would tell some bad jokes. Yeah. So... And what was the second half of the show? The second half was the girl from the first one that... Lived.
0: And I guess she's the main character now.
2: Yeah. And then.
0: And, um, Nikki. Um, we get to see Nikki's face yeah. as she's dead. Yeah. And the part. The first time I saw it, really, like, not when she was being all creepy, just like, avenge my death. Yeah. Boy. And, um, she comes in and she's holding the glass of wine, I think. Mm hmm. her face. Her face is terrifying. It's like
2: a zombie face, right?
0: No, her eyes are just.
2: Yeah, pretty scary stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty spooky stuff, right? Uh-huh. And then that one ends with the girl beating the death out of her boyfriend with a trophy and blood flies everywhere. While
0: screaming, I'm a winner. Yes,
2: yeah, so while screaming, I'm a winner over and over again. So, was do you think this show was good or bad?
0: It was, um... Wasn't, I think it was, I mean, I liked watching it, but it wasn't really good.
2: Would you watch it every week, or would you be like, oh, I'm kind of tired of this? I'm
0: going to go watch Netflix, you thank you. find
2: stuff on Netflix. So that show was on when Dad was in junior high school, like 8th grade and ninth grade. Well,
0: actually, I'd probably watch it. So
2: back then, we didn't have Netflix. We didn't have Hulu.
0: Well, if we didn't have Netflix, then yeah, I'm watching yeah, it. We
2: didn't even have... Um, video recorder dvrs where i could record something digitally and watch it whenever so i had a tv yeah. that was smaller than this laptop screen it was about the size of a loaf of bread it was portable and every friday night i would watch that and i would watch the friday the 13th television series Ooh. now you know what was crazy about the friday the 13th series what jason wasn't even in it what I know, it was
0: at least with the Freddy one, they included Freddy. But... At least
2: Freddy shows up a little bit, right? Yeah. So in the Friday the Thirteenth series, it was about these people that own an antique store. And the antiques are all cursed by the devil, and they have to go and find all the cursed items. So,
0: like, what does that have to do with Friday the 13th?
2: It has nothing to do with it, except the people that owned the name of it thought it would be fun to make a TV show and trick people into watching it because they thought Jason would show up. (laughs) Okay. And they would make money. So I would watch that and Freddy's Nightmares every Friday night.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, and that was fun. But what do you have now? Like, there's so many more shows, aren't there?
0: Yeah, I would definitely watch that. But if there wasn't, like, if it wasn't, like, on Netflix, I'd probably watch something else and maybe watch that from time to mm-hmm. time.
2: Yeah, it wouldn't be your favorite thing to watch? No. Like, usually when you watch a show, you'll, like, watch all of it all in a row until you're done with it and then yeah. pick a new show. you think you might have done, like, a couple episodes and then been like, eh, I'll come back to this later uh-huh so what was the anime you were watching the other night
0: death note
2: what's that about
0: it's about a dude who randomly sees a note falling out of the sky and he's like that's funny notes aren't supposed to fall out of the sky so he picks it up and there's some instructions saying that if you write somebody's name down while thinking of their face they will die mm-hmm. and then he sees a demon who really likes apples
2: okay why does he like apples so much
0: It doesn't say.
2: No? So how much of that have you watched so far?
0: Um, I think 30 episodes.
2: You've watched 30 episodes? Oh my goodness. I thought you just started watching it.
0: You have no idea how many episodes I can watch in a day then. Oh my
2: God. Well, you've been not watching as much TV lately though. You've been more reading and going on the trampoline. Uh Uh-huh. Oh boy. Are you watching it at night when you're supposed to be in bed on your Kindle? No. Are you sure? Yeah. Do we have to lock your Kindle and switch up Because no. you start school in like a week, so you're going to be in for a shock when you're not up so late and you have to go to school.
0: I'll just suffer.
2: Yes, you are definitely going to suffer like dad and mom have suffered for years. <laughs> so what was good about, what would you rather watch, Freddy's Nightmares or Death Note?
0: Death Note. All
2: right, so that was a lot better. What else would you recommend? If you wanted to recommend a spooky show to watch for Halloween season, what would you recommend to people right now?
0: What would I recommend? Yeah. Um, lock and Key.
2: What's Lock and Key?
0: It's a show about magic keys. Yeah. But And once you get older, you forget about the keys. Mm-hmm. And also there's a demon lady who wants your soul and will kill you to get the keys, but she can't physically mm-hmm. touch you or try to grab the keys from okay. you. So, he does things like summon rings of fire.
2: Excellent. All right. Well, any final thoughts about Freddy's Nightmares before we sign off for the week? Um, no. Nothing? Okay. Well, that show left a real impression on you, Ada. You can see how much you liked it. So, next It was okay. Yeah, it was just okay. All right. So, next week, you and I will be back to talk about A Nightmare in Elm Street 5 The Dream Child.
0: Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.